Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today, we're dipping into the UBS Global Wealth Management CIO's outlook on the second half of 2022. This piece of investment research is subtitled Stagflation, Reflation, Soft Landing or Slump, which pretty much captures the main thrust of the questions posed and answers suggested in the piece. So which of these factors will drive the market in the months ahead? And how will markets react? Our panel today features two good friends of this programme, Kiran Ganesh, strategist in the UBS CIO and editor-in-chief of the Outlook piece, and Paul Donovan, chief economist of UBS Wealth Management, one of our regular chroniclers and untanglers of the vicissitudes of the market. It's a great pleasure to welcome back both Paul and Kieran to the programme. Kieran Ganesh, Paul Donovan, welcome. Thanks to you both, as always, for being with us. Paul Donovan, maybe I'll throw this over to you first of all. We've got the outlook for H2 in the frame, but perhaps in a sense it's instructive to start with a quick review almost of, of H1. And let me ask you this, to what extent does what we have seen in the first half instruct us about what we might best expect to follow in the remaining six months? And that's not an easy question to start with, I'm afraid. <laughs> I, there are aspects of what we've seen in the first half of this year which have sort of established trends. So the process of gradually normalizing demand for goods after the post-pandemic boom, you know, that started to get underway in the first half of this year. That's likely to continue in the second half of the year. The shift from spending on goods towards spending on services in consumers, a trend that sort of gradually emerged over the first half and which is likely to continue in the second half. But then we have the disruption of the war in Ukraine, which still has a lot of uncertainty as we look in the second half of the year, the implications around energy supply, around food prices, where there's considerable uncertainty. And I think central banks are also providing uncertainty, particularly the Federal Reserve, which has certainly undermined, if not completely abandoned, the forward guidance that it used to give. Whereas in the first half of this year, you know, the Fed was explicitly saying, this is what we're going to do. After the June decision, markets have got no reason to trust anything the Fed says, and that's going to add an element of uncertainty in the second half. Well, we'll talk more about volatility and we'll definitely mention the Fed a little later. Kieran, let me bring you in here, though, first of all. And of course, you're the editor in chief of the Outlook piece. And its subhead is stagflation, reflation, soft landing or slump. How did you choose in this slightly mad environment? How did you choose just those four options to subhead the piece? Well, exactly. I think that in such a mad environment, the problem is choosing which four of the many potential outcomes we could get to. Essentially, we thought about what are the different narratives which are driving markets at the moment. Markets are driven by stories that investors tell themselves. And we think that these four are the ones which are have the greatest chance of driving markets in the second half. Now, of course, they all have very different outcomes and implications, and we don't know, you know exactly which one is going to dominate. But we think that by analysing the way that markets might move around each of those scenarios, we think that we've got some chance of trying to understand you know, what is happening in markets and trying to find some investment positions that might uh, make sense across a range of those scenarios. Well, this is it, I guess. And the thrust here is how, for both of you, you know, how you and your colleagues help clients 
to best navigate the backdrop you've described, to continue to protect and indeed to grow wealth. Paul, I suppose, well, that's the germane question, isn't it? How should they be going about doing that? I know the report specifically talks about these four sort of progressive steps they can take, but I guess there are a few things to always bear in mind when trying to go about that process in a responsible way. Well, I think, you know, obviously, everyone has to consider you know, what we at UBS call the three L's, you know, liquidity, longevity, and legacy. You know, what is it you are investing for and how you allocate your money will vary on, on which of those three things you are emphasizing. And so that's always important because at any time, no matter what the markets are doing, those are things that you need to be bearing in mind. I think also when we are looking at market volatility, and uncertainty about the economy, it is important to be very wary about trusting gut instincts because emotion is not something that should be governing investment decisions in a period like this, particularly when your sort of personal economic experience is not necessarily the same as the wider economic experience. And if you're trying to judge off of sort of personal anecdote and what friends and family have been telling you, that's a very, very dangerous way to be viewing the world. So I think it's having an objectivity in your analysis of the economy and then obviously by extension to the markets. That's always very, very important to do. And we're seeing this. I mean, we're really seeing this in the economic data at the moment where things like political bias are really distorting surveys and so forth. And that, I think, is illustrative of actually some of the dangers of relying on your personal instinct, relying on your personal opinion, rather than taking an objective, facts-based approach to where the economy is going and therefore where markets are going. Well, yeah, Kieran, and that's interesting. In that exact, that volatile environment that Paul's describing there, it can, of course, be a little overwhelming, maybe intimidating, even to seasoned investors. Perhaps you might talk us through how we can usefully sort of game these four particular scenarios, which we mentioned, of course, in the subhead of the piece, and why that can help to mitigate against some of those potential pitfalls that Paul was just talking about. Well, I think it really gets to the essence of diversification that the uncertainties we have today require investors to think about different potential outcomes and different potential investments that might perform well across those different scenarios. So if you think about the stagflation scenario in which we see both equities and bonds continuing to sell off, well, that speaks to the importance of having you know, some cash on hand and some short duration investments, things like hedge funds, which are less correlated in your portfolio. And the possibility that we face some sort of economic slump in which we see the economy slowing quite dramatically speaks to the importance of holding investment grade and high grade bonds in your portfolio because they would likely do very well in such an outcome. The possibility that we sort of muddle through and inflation comes down gradually speaks to the importance of having different uh, equities within your portfolio, whether those are defensives or value. We think those could perform well in that kind of environment. And then, of course, on a longer term horizon, you know, we think that equity markets will move higher, rates likely will move lower. And that should mean that some of the growth stocks and themes that have performed quite poorly over the course of the past year start to do better and areas like private equity look attractive in that context as well. So, you know, we can't say which scenario we're going to end up in in any precision, but I think that really speaks to the value of diversifying your portfolio across all of those areas because then you can perform well throughout the course of the cycle, almost regardless of which scenario we end up in. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned inflation there, Kieran. I did want to come on to that. And Paul, I like, as I've proven already so far in our conversation, asking you these really easy questions. Here's another one for you. Has inflation peaked? Sort of, I think, is the answer. Essentially, it does depend on which country you're looking at because there are peculiarities in inflation numbers. So, for example, in the United Kingdom, we have a really weird way of dealing with electricity and gas prices. And that means that inflation will go up again in the UK later this year, mainly because of the way the government interferes in the market. I think that around about now, we are probably seeing the peak in inflation, certainly on a number of measures that are used, like the core PC deflator, which at least used to be the Fed's target measure. Their inflation has clearly peaked and is coming down. But on one or two other measures, because of quirks in calculation, you may still see some increases. What I think is important to stress, because this does come up quite a lot as a concern, is the pricing mechanism is still working. So when we look at the detail of inflation, where we are seeing demand consistently weakening, we are seeing inflation for that sector, for that product or service come down. So it's not the case that inflation is inexorably rising, even if there's an absence of demand. Where there is a slowdown in demand for a product, we are then seeing the inflation rate of that product slow down, or in some cases actually turn negative. I mean, it's worthwhile pointing out that actually very unusually, given that we've got high inflation, we've also got sectors of all the major economies that are actually experiencing deflation or negative inflation at this stage. Well, yeah. And Paul, I just wondered as a corollary, you mentioned the Fed, and I did say we'd come back to that. Do we also need to look in this space, not just if we're talking about fixed income, but in this context, do we need to talk about terminal rates potentially, where we think central banks will stop hiking interest rates? Or does, as you say, there's been a bit of doubt has been sown because of some earlier indicators this year. Is that less significant to ask about what the terminal rate that the Fed say sets is going to be? Well, I think that when I look at the commentary in the market, at least at the moment, part of the problem we're talking about terminal rate is no one thinks that the Fed stays at its terminal rate very long because you're now starting to get forecasts about how quickly does the Fed cut. And that may be a function of the fact that, in my view, the Fed has made some policy errors and it's added unnecessary volatility into the market. And so there's an expectation that actually they might make a mistake and they might have to reverse that mistake. So the concept of the terminal rate is becoming quite tricky because actually people are saying, well, the Fed's going to hike and then, you know, within a matter of three months, turn around and start easing again. So is that a terminal rate? Well, yes, sort of, but only for a very, very brief period of time. So I think the focus at least economically now, is more going to be on the speed with which the Fed is raising rates and less about the terminal rate. And one of the reasons for that is that what central banks need to be doing to control inflation is actually to create disinflation or deflation in the areas of the economy that they can control to offset the inflation in the areas of the economy that they can't control. And that means that the speed with which they hike is going to dictate how much deflation you get in these specific areas. But the other issue with central bank action and inflation and why the speed is potentially quite significant is that central banks are not actually looking to reduce wage pressures because there are no wage pressures. We've got negative real wage growth in pretty much every major economy and record negative real wage growth in the United States. 
So it's not about the wage pressures. What the Fed is having to do and what other central banks are having to do is slow down demand. And what is uncertain is how quickly does demand respond to a a tightening policy cycle compared to how quickly wages respond. And the chances are demand responds more quickly. So that means if the Fed is acting quickly by raising rates quickly, the pass-through of that to demand and then ultimately to inflation may also be faster, and that would mean that the terminal rate would be lower than if the Fed were trying to influence wages. So we've got this really messy situation, and I think, frankly, it's probably better to be focusing on the speed of the Fed's reaction function rather than necessarily where they briefly end up for a few months before they start reversing the policy errors that they've made. You mentioned that those errors possibly contributed to some unnecessary volatility. We keep coming back to this idea about volatility throughout the picture. And Kieran, one bit of the report actually that struck me was this reminder that it's important to try and make use of volatility. Can you just talk briefly about, I guess, what exactly you mean by making use of volatility in this context? There's a few ways that volatility can be helpful for investors. The way it can be harmful, of course, is if short-term price movements lead investors to change their long-term plans and often they can get out of markets and then find it really difficult to reinvest because maybe markets rally and it's hard to buy in at a higher price than you sold at. But there are all good ways to think about it in a positive way. You know, one, of course, is in the process of building longer term wealth, you know, assuming investors are still earning. And then, of course, periods of lower prices can be a great period to accumulate um, assets and which appreciate over time. The other ways to think about volatility in a positive sense is that you can earn quite attractive yields if you're looking to sell volatility, so effectively either sell insurance on stocks or be willing to give up some further upside on stocks. And you can earn quite attractive terms if you're willing to sell that volatility in exchange for income. And then equally, if you're concerned about uh, potential price movements, there are you know, ways to gain asymmetric exposures. When markets go haywire, you tend to find that there are mispricings in options markets and you can get asymmetric exposures to markets. And that can allow investors to invest in a way that they've got you know, more chance of doing better if markets go up than they do if markets go down. So I think there are a range of opportunities for investors in the volatility space. And we would encourage people to think about it you know, as much as possible in a positive light for the longer term rather than as a source of fear. Kieran Ganesh, and before that, Paul Donovan. And that brings us to the end of this edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance each week here on Monocle 24. Listen again and explore more at monocle.com. That's where you can join the club by subscribing to Monocle magazine. You can also follow this programme wherever you get your podcasts and discover more and find out how UBS can help you at ubs.com. This is The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening.